lecture three part two of the endowments of man by william bernard ullathorne this librivox recording is in the public domain lecture three the secondary image of god in man part two besides the natural ends which the inferior creation fulfils god calls this creation to accomplish a supernatural end when he employs its elements with which to express his supernatural revelations and also when man is called to employ them in his divine worship and service in the first instance all nature becomes an imagery and a language in the mouth of god whereby to make known his eternal truth as we see in all the scriptures in the second instance the elements of nature as appointed by god and with the consecration of sacerdotal power are made the expressive veils and localizing envelopments of the divine sacrifice and of the sacraments that bring grace to man as in other religious uses they give a symbolic splendor to god's worship and are the visible expression of innumerable benedictions we cannot therefore rise to the full significance of that dominion which god has given to man over his creation unless we embrace the supernatural as well as the natural ends for which that dominion is given man was made in the image of god then not only that he might be capable of union with god but also that he might be capable of receiving as god's representative a certain power and dominion over the inferior creation and this authority to subject the irrational creatures of god to his will and dominion constitutes that secondary image of god which is founded on the first in which he bears a living resemblance to the holy trinity the image of god by nature and his likeness by grace he is also the vice-regent of the sovereign lord of nature by divine appointment he is the image of the eternal king in his authority over a portion of his dominions over that part of creation which is made inferior to him the knowledge of these inferior creatures is in him and not in them their use and service is for him and he is as a god to them by the divine command the whole world labors to serve him day and night without cessation either supplying his wants and pleasures without his intervention or ready at his call to do his will hence saint basil calls man a creature of empire certain of the fathers especially those of the literal school of antioch point to the intimate connection between the words of genesis let us make man to our own image and likeness and the succeeding part of the sentence and let him have dominion over the fishes of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts and the whole earth they observe that man was thus made to the image of god as he is the lord and ruler of the visible creation it will be sufficient to quote st gregory of nyssa and st john chrysostom st gregory says 
as human craftsmen give such forms to their implements as are most fitted to their purpose so the divine artificer has made of our nature a most suitable instrument to administer a kingdom to make man capable of this he adorned him with excellent gifts of mind and with that form of body that we see his mind proclaims a certain high and royal dignity in him far exceeding what belongs to a private condition his soul knows no master in this world he does all things as he wills and governs himself as he chooses with a sovereign command to whom can this belong but to a king man is moreover the image of the divine nature whose empire all things obey in this image we see the princely dignity that was given him at his creation when human artists make the images of princes they carve their lineaments after nature clothe them with the royal purple and when this image is completed it is called a king but man was by nature framed and made erect to be the image and resemblance of the king of the universe and he receives a dignity and title from his divine archetype to be the lord of creatures this image is not clothed with purple nor is this dignity set forth with diadem and sceptre because the divine exemplar whom he represents has none of these but instead of purple he has virtue for his clothing instead of a diadem he wears a crown of justice and instead of a sceptre he has immortal happiness st gregory then observes that as artists take the likeness of men with colors god depicts his likeness in souls with the virtues and that it is purity peace exemption from evil and a happy content that makes men like to god he then concludes as god sees all hears all and searches all things man is also like god in that he sees and hears many things and searches them with intelligence st john chrysostom has treated the subject on four distinct occasions and although contrary to the common exposition he regards the dominion of man as his chief resemblance to god this does not lessen the value of his argument we shall give them an abridgment first observing that he never loses sight of the fact that this dominion has to be especially exerted over our own inferior and sensual nature man is god's image he says in the empire which he holds over the inferior creation and he is god's likeness according to the measure of human power by meekness gentleness and the virtues even as christ has said be ye like to your father who is in heaven as in this wide and spacious earth some animals are tame and others fierce so in the breath of our soul some thoughts are irrational flocking like silly sheep others are wild and fierce they need to be ruled 
and to be brought under the dominion of reason if men can overcome lions and bring them to gentleness is it to be doubted that they can subdue their own wildness the beast that is fierce by nature can be made gentle beyond his nature man who is gentle by nature can make himself fierce beyond his nature yet if you can take from the lion what belongs to his nature and can put in him a gentleness that does not belong to him you may surely recover that gentleness which properly belongs to your own nature there is a prodigious obstacle to the taming of a lion for he has not the light of reason and yet men by using their own reason can succeed in making him subject and obedient and can exhibit this skill of theirs for money but god has given reason to you and the fear of him and all kinds of help so that if you choose to have dominion over your inferior nature you may become meek and gentle and equable the unbeliever will say that god has not given dominion to man over the beasts and that they have more power over him than he has over them this is not true because they fly before him if when pressed by hunger they rend and tear him to pieces that is not because he did not receive dominion over them but because he has become a criminal we now hold those wild creatures in fear and dread but this does not falsify the promise of god it was not so from the beginning for then all the beasts feared and reverenced their master but when through our own disobedience we lost confidence before god our sovereignty over these creatures became weakened that they were all subject to man in his innocence we learn from the scriptures the lord god brought them before adam to see what he would call them for whatsoever adam called any living creature the same is its name he shrank not from their presence but he gave names to them as a master names his servants and that in token of his dominion over them when eve was innocent the serpent inspired her with no terror but when sin entered into man this dignity and power sank into weakness so long as he trusted in god all creatures feared him but when he transferred his trust from god to himself he not only had to fear the excesses of the beasts but even those of his fellow creatures these very fears prove the benignity of god to him for if he had been in all his honor and power it would not have been so easy for him to rise from his fall with what an unspeakable benignity he was treated adam transgressed the whole law of god and subverted his whole commandment yet in his merciful goodness god took not all his honor from him he cast him not down from all his sovereignty he withdrew from us a great measure of our power over those animals that contribute but little to the service of our life whilst he still left those under our complete dominion 
that are most useful and necessary for our service in punishing man for his disobedience he said in the sweat of thy brow shalt thou eat thy bread yet lest that sweat and labor should become intolerable our god alleviates our toil and suffering through the multitude of his creatures that both toil for us and suffer with us if the wild animals when clothed in their strength inspire us with fear they also remind us of the strength and the wisdom that we ourselves have lost by our disobedience and of the dignity that we have lost with the loss of innocence but in punishment for our trifling with god's divine sovereignty we are subject to still greater humiliations and the smallest of living creatures have the power to annoy us with their noxious importunities and as the executioners of our mortality they breed in us the most terrible diseases yet when we look through the history of faith and sanctity we find many examples of the restoration of that prerogative of dominion to man over the wildest and the most ferocious creatures that recall to our minds what power he had in the state of innocence noah by faith commanded all the animals in the ark elias was served by ravens and protected by bears daniel commanded the lions in their hunger and ferocity st paul held the viper in his hand without injury lions and wolves were obedient to the holy hermits of the desert the most ferocious animals in their most ravening moments were seen by fifty thousands persons in the roman amphitheatres crouching meekly at the feet of the christian martyrs and refusing to do them any harm even the devouring element of fire sometimes refused its office of destruction but cruel man left ever to his own free will stepped in to inflict their martyrdom upon the saints with tortures and the sword the time would fail me says st paul were i to speak of gideon barak samson jephthah samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms wrought justice obtained promises stopped the mouths of lions quenched the violence of fire escaped the edge of the sword recovered strength from weakness became valiant in battle put to flight the armies of foreigners women received their dead raised to life again the second adam christ our lord in his humanity who was the full image of god with perfect innocence commanded all nature at his will yet he withheld this will from command when his object was to be hidden or to suffer and this power over the inferior creation he promised to the obedience of perfect faith to that faith with which unwavering constancy trusts wholly in god and nothing in self when the disciples saw the unfruitful fig tree withered up at their lord's command and wondering said how is it presently withered up jesus said to them 
Amen, I say to you, if you shall have faith and stagger not, not only this of the fig tree shall you do, but also if you shall say to this mountain, Take up and cast thyself into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever you ask in prayer believing, it shall be done to you. Among his last words on earth he also said, These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall take up serpents, and if they shall drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay their hands on the sick, and they shall recover. The justice, therefore, that comes to us through mercy has ordained that, on our return to perfect faith and obedience, some portion of our lost dominion shall return to us, sufficient at least for our edification and instruction, and for a visible proof that God is with his servants. When, however, the wildness of nature and the adverse elements of the world continue their hostility against the holy servants of God, they are still the servants of the cross of Christ, and the ministers to that patience by which the kingdom of heaven is won. But all the creatures that serve our will, or administer to our wants, or to the work of our probation, have their force from him without whose providence they can do nothing. But as God works without ceasing in them, for our use and benefit, why should we refuse to work with them for his service and to his glory? God has not only devoted the inferior creation to our service, but also the superior creation. For not to speak of the countless services which under the direction of God's providence men render to each other, both with intention and without intention, from his heavenly hosts our divine Father sends his angels to us to help, guide, and protect us, so that we are served from heaven as well as from the earth. Considering therefore what innumerable servants God puts at our disposal, both conscious and unconscious, we may conclude what great service we owe to him, whose chief object in all these things is to draw us gratefully to him, that to him may be given the honor and the glory that is due from all his creatures. That we may take a deeper and wider view of the divine plan of this earthly creation, let us consider more carefully what is the position of man in the midst of it. Composed in such a manner of soul and body, that of the body the soul is the form, life, and animating principle, whilst the body, as the instrument of the soul, holds commerce with the whole exterior and visible creation. This intellectual spirit and mortal flesh exist together in a wonderful and inexplicable communion of life and personality. The soul lives in herself, yet dependent on God, lives with the light of God's truth in her mind, with the greater light of God in her faith, 
and with a spiritual sense that feels after divine things she lives also in the body giving life and animation to its senses and activities which are in contact with the whole visible creation the soul thinks through the mind feels through the senses and acts from the will but whilst the truths of the invisible world are imparted to the mind and terminate in the superior soul that looks to truth the messages from this visible world come through the senses and terminate in the imagination that inferior side of the soul that is in commerce with the body but as the soul herself is one and simple the imagination which receives the images of things from the external world is intimately united with the intelligence in which dwells the light of truth thus whilst the light of truth in the intelligence tests the truthfulness of those images that are present in the imagination the imagination itself has an office to perform towards the purely spiritual truths that are given to the mind for the wealth of imagery in the imagination obtained from the visible world serves to illustrate those pure truths with the earthly shadows of them that abound in this material world thus whilst the soul is one and simple in herself on her superior side she holds to spiritual truth and gains the sense of spiritual things whilst on the inferior side she holds to the body and receives the impress of those earthly things in their images which divide her attention and which either enrich her when she uses them justly and wisely or trouble her when she uses them unjustly and unwisely she is therefore spiritual when she subjects her senses to her spiritual will and carnal when she subjects her spiritual to her sensual life like understands like when the soul made in god's image is subject to the light of faith and in obeying the grace of charity receives the likeness of god man becomes an aranus a little heaven according to his measure and quality reflecting the heavens that are above as in the composition of his body he has the elements of the visible world the inferior man is a likeness of this world receives the images of all visible things and is thus a cosmos a little world reflecting the great world around him thus heaven and earth meet in the soul of the just and faithful man that in his superior soul he may serve and worship god and through his inferior soul the elements of this world may be brought into subjection to god through him this is the primary reason of that secondary image of god in man which consists in his delegated dominion over the inferior creation the man of faith who is just to the divinely established order of things is the living link between earth and heaven the spiritual bond of communion between the creature and the creator 
he subjects the world to himself and himself to god as god's representative he administers the things of this world as they are committed to his keeping and according to the will of his lord god has made him both king and priest to rule them reasonably and to offer them devoutly to the praise and glory of their creator and lord as they are devoid of reason his reason supplies for them by his faith and his devotion in him as in a living temple god's image is set up his likeness is exhibited and his authority represented that through him the inferior creatures may do homage to god and render obedient service taking this just view of man's position the fathers of the church rival each other in finding terms to express the dignity of man in his offices to the world they call him the abridgment of the world and the word of the world st gregory nazianzen calls him the observer of the visible world and the pontiff of visible things asterius designates him as the interpreter of the creator st gregory of nyssa calls him the consecrator of the universe lactantius says he is in the world as a priest in a holy temple where all things are made for him and he is made for god and where he contemplates the divine works that he may refer them to god these are not the exaggerated expressions of poets or enthusiastical humanitarians they are the grave and well-pondered conclusions of theologians who have weighed the sense of divine revelations who exhibit the offices of men in the dignity which god has assigned to them and who put them forth to enforce on man the sense of his responsibilities the prophets are full of this view of man's position in the creation as its king and priest and the inspired psalmody that divine song both of the hebrew temple and of the christian church is deeply imbued with that spirit of devotion by which a tongue of praise and a voice of thanksgiving is given to man with which to speak the language of gratitude to god for the whole creation take for example the one hundred forty eighth psalm or the canticle of the three children in the fiery furnace both of which are used in the morning lauds of the church there the tongue of man gives a voice both to the animate and inanimate creatures of god that through him all mute and unconscious creatures called upon each by name may praise the lord of heaven and earth and bless him and superexalt him above all for ever whosoever shall enter into the spirit of this devotion and carry it out as the saints have done into their daily commerce with god's creatures will comprehend the office and dignity with which god has invested man of being the mind the heart and the voice of the dumb creatures of this earth to their creator and lord in heaven 
if man would only rise up in mind and soul to the higher position which god has assigned to him in this earthly creation if he would but understand the high honour and great prerogative which god has conferred on him as his representative to the creatures that are made subject to his dominion if he would enter into the design of god in making him the immediate end of those creatures if he would only take it to heart that god has made them to do him service that he may be able to serve god better and to bring all god's works to do him their service if he would only use his intelligence to understand and feel that god has placed him a spirit endowed with mind and law in an earthly body that through him all the earth and the heavens around the earth might do homage to god if he would but fulfil this solemn office which god has assigned to him ruling all things that god has made subject to him in the name of god and by the law of god accounting for all with god and offering all to god then would he be what the saints with their keen intuition have always been the faithful and disinterested stewards of god over the inferior creation and the assiduous ministers of that creation unto god but when man was in honour he did not understand he was compared with foolish beasts and became like to them he who rules not himself can rule nothing rightly remember then that the earth begins for us in our own body and that the beginning of our dominion over the earth is the subjection of the body to the soul the senses are the instruments of the soul in her communications with the inferior creation and the body is the minister of her will but how can we govern wisely through a rebellious minister and with indocile instruments the first principle of dominion therefore is the subjection to the soul of that quickened earth which forms our own body this sacred duty is founded in the nature of things as well as in the command of god it is essential to the internal order and to the intellectual as well as the moral strength of man it is imposed upon us by the eternal law of justice it is absolutely indispensable to our own well-being unless our body with its senses appetites and passions is made subject to the law of our mind what have we in contact with the external world that is not disordered enfeebled and let loose from responsibility the spiritual soul whose proper endowments are light law and love suffers an invasion of dark earthly and lawless things that break down her unity put out her light and defile her love what is left to the soul after that which is not weak and unsuited to her nature and aspirations the inferior nature takes god's place in the soul and in one way or another earth usurps the dominion of spirit and death of life 
the man becomes carnal sold unto sin yet the divine gifts of god are not for the earthly man nor can they be the carnal man cannot receive them as they are in their nature spiritual and their end is god they can only be received by the spiritual man when a soul deserts her place and comes down into the body to be inebriated and saturated with earth and carnality that soul deserts her spiritual office and is a traitor to her spiritual nature how can such a one rule the inferior creation when that lower creation is ruling her instead of being the image of god the lord and master of all dominion the soul becomes the image of things viler than her nature and created for her service it follows therefore as a matter of course that when man fell from god and lost his spiritual strength and the dominion of his own body he of necessity lost the first great power that he had over the exterior creation but in the proportion in which he recovers dominion over himself he recovers dominion over the world around him for the secret of that dominion lies in his own subjection to god End of Lecture 3, Part 2